0: I know that there are a lot of men who took care of kids for the last couple of days who are very glad that their wives are back home. I told my wife I have this I have this uh, tendency to wiggle a little bit at night. It's been a source of tension in our marriage for years, uh, especially when my wife is really tired. If I wiggle, she's so like, "Can't you can't you just be can't you be still?" I'm like. I can't. I can't. I, I have to wiggle. And it's not as bad as it used to be. When I was younger, you know, if I laid on my stomach, my feet would just kind of go like windshield wipers. You know, I would do this until i would go to sleep. I don't do that now. But I told my wife in a moment of her frustration, not mine, uh, she said, well, you, I'm going to have to go to another bed. And uh, I just said very lovingly, when you go for the weekend, I'm going to wiggle all night long. <laughs> it's going to be the greatest. And I did that for a little bit, and it gets old. So I'll say this. I would trade having my wife by my side. I would rather have my wife by my side than the ability to wiggle myself to sleep every night. So, honey, I'm glad you were home. I did wiggle. I told myself the first night when I, when I laid down to rest, I was like, I just get to wiggle. So I just wiggled. I just got my feet wiggling. Then it got old real fast. I was like, I'm kind of tired now, <laughs> you know, uh. Like, all right, I want my wife back. Those five minutes were great. I lived it up. You know, I sowed my wild oats by wiggling my feet. And uh, we're back in the game. So I'm so glad. I'm so glad she's home. We all good back there? All right, so Austin read you the text. Again, Jesus spoke to them. and He said, I'm the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. This is right on the heels of Jesus speaking to uh to the Jews there, specifically the religious elite who were ready to throw stones according to the Mosaic law when the woman was found in adultery. And what's interesting is you find that these men and and whoever else were were beside them, whoever else is not mentioned, whoever else were trying to follow suit, what's interesting is you have these men who are law-abiding men who are trying to trick the lawgiver trying to trick him, trying to catch him in a pickle, trying to get him to contradict himself because it was kind of a, uh, between a rock and a hard place. The law says you've got to stone this woman because she was caught in the very act of adultery. If you do it, you're hated by everyone. If you do it, there goes your message of hope and mercy and grace because you yourself are a part of this act. But if you don't do it, you're not law abiding. And Jesus being as wise as he is, he evades the whole thing in the sense that he just writes something in the sand. He doesn't have to give a response. He doesn't have to deny the law. He doesn't have to do these things. He doesn't have to get caught up in this trick or this pickle that they're trying to catch him in. He just writes in the sand and they walk away. And then he looks at the woman and he says, look around you, who condemns you? She looks around and there's no one. Those who were standing with stones were ready to hurl these stones against her because that's what the Mosaic law called for. Not that it was wrong of God to give Moses this law because, again, when God gave Moses this law, as hard as some of these things are for us to swallow, ultimately and definitively, God is painting a picture for us of his holiness. He's saying these are strict and the standards are high. But that is a glimpse of my holiness. And so here we are right after this encounter with this woman caught in adultery and Jesus continues to speak to these people and what he says directly after this encounter is I am the light of the world whoever follows me will not walk in darkness but will have the light of life here's my objective for today my objective I will speak slowly for you Shanna (laughs) to see the multifaceted implications of Christ's statement, I am the light of the world. And to explore the meaning of walking in the light instead of walking in the darkness. One more time. To see the multifaceted implications of Christ's statement, I am the light of the world, and to explore the meaning of walking in the light instead of the darkness. Keep in mind that when we hear these words, we approach this text and we've heard not just this I am statement of Christ, but we've heard all of his I am statements. Most of you, if not all of you, were probably raised in church or definitely in church culture. So you've heard things like Jesus is the light of the world, that Jesus is the good shepherd, Jesus is the door, Jesus is the true vine, Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. He's the living water. You've heard these things, and I'm not saying they're boring to you, but it's commonplace because it's landed on ears that have heard these things over and over and over again but again the way that we interact with the scripture is we take ourself to the first century we don't pull it to accommodate us we go and we interact with it in its context so we consider the first century and how this statement would have landed on the Jews and it would have been earth shattering it would have been something that flipped everything on its head for Christ to say to a people that would be familiar with the theme and the patterns of light and darkness woven throughout the fabric of Scripture, for them to hear him say something like that would have turned everything on its head. And this is just Jesus following suit with all the other statements that he's already made declaring his divinity. And I'll remind you of this, that John has already told us the purpose of his gospel he's giving these things that we might believe that he is the Christ that he is divine that he is fully God that he is fully man John has written for us an apologetic on the deity of Christ and so what we see here with Jesus is him saying to them I am God I am the light of the world this is what he's saying to them so there's a tendency to read this text Ah, I'm the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not fall into darkness because he has the light of life. Let's move on. That's what I did when I started preparing for this. Okay, I know that statement. Boom, I can say a few things about that. So I started to read the dialogue. I started to read the interaction that Jesus has, which is very similar to the dialogue interaction that he has already had with the Jews up to this point. He starts talking about where he's come from. He's talking about where he's going and how you don't know where I've come from. You don't know where I'm going. I know these things. We've heard this language before. And that's the same thing we're going to see again. Jesus is reiterating over and over again the reality of his presence, of where he's going, of where he's come from. And it's all wrapped up in his deity. But instead of moving on through that, we'll go through some of that dialogue in a couple of weeks when we reconvene uh, here once everything's said and done here. And uh, Austin and I continue preaching through this. Uh, we'll, We'll address those things but I decided I just wanted to camp out on I am the light of the world today so not just I am the light of the world but I am the light of the world and then the subsequent words that follow there in verse 12 so Jesus says I am the light of the world and it's a few things in order that we don't just peruse by in order that we don't miss something I want to kind of flesh out some of these implications of what Jesus is saying and this is this is big time This is big time because if you encounter a Jehovah's Witness or you encounter anyone that would reject the deity of Christ, you don't have to just say, well, he says I'm the light of the world and pass over it. Maybe you never thought to go to this text as a text to argue for the deity of Christ. Maybe you've never done that. It's not necessarily one that I would go to first. It's just not. For years and years, I thought there were so many that were just plainer so many that were more clear or clearer and I could just interact with those and I think there's tons of them and then I landed on this and got to thinking on this and trying to really meditate and trying to study the scriptures and look at the connections look at the correlations look how things correspond and there were several things that stood out to me about this statement what Jesus says here he first offers a statement I am the light of the world and then he offers a promise a promise with tremendous specificity Alright, so first we look at this statement. So two points today. Very simple, right? So there's a statement. He offers a statement. First of all, to break down the statement, it's a statement of divinity. Make no mistake about it. Jesus is saying, I am God. And your first clue is in your first word there, Ego I me, which is I am. Where have we heard that before? No, no, no. Not, not moments before. Not chapters before. Hundreds before. And hundreds and hundreds of years before, where have we heard this language? If you will, you don't have to turn in your Bibles, but you can kind of go with me in your mind at least to Exodus chapter 4, a fantastic, fantastic passage. Our missional community talked about the holiness of God, and this is one I didn't mention. Uh, I was going to mention it. I'm glad I didn't because I wanted to highlight it today. So Exodus chapter 3, a very familiar passage. Moses is minding his own business. He's tending the flocks of his father-in-law, Jethro. He's doing his own thing. He's minding his business, not looking to stir up trouble, not looking to make a name for himself, not looking to do anything. Keep in mind, he fled Egypt years before to go and basically hide out here, but you can't hide from God, right? Finally, God said, okay, now it's time. Because your appointed time had come for me to do with you what I had planned to do with you from the beginning. And you can't escape that because who can resist the will of God, right? Nothing can thwart his will. God gets what he desires. That's what the scripture says. So you see that reality coming out in God connecting with Moses. And the way he does it is fantastic. Not through this voice, just a voice that comes from heaven, but through a voice that is coming from a bush that is on fire but not being consumed. Now again, this is something that you've read All your life, you've gone to vacation Bible school and you probably, for some of us, had a little felt board and you had a little felt piece of fire and you had a felt bush and you put the bush on there and you put the fire on there and then you had Moses and you felted him to the felt board. You've known this story, you've heard this story and maybe for some of you, you just kind of think past it. Yeah, it's cool, a bush is on fire, but God created all things. That's not so impressive when you think of all that God has done. I get that. But a bush is on fire and God speaks to Moses Because Moses comes to investigate what's happening, because you've got to admit, it's a strange sight to see something that's burning but not being consumed. So he comes up to the fire, and God speaks to him and says, stop right there, remove your sandals, because the place you're standing is holy ground. Not because there was something special about the soil, not because there was something special about the bush, but because he was in the presence of Yahweh. He was in the presence of God. So right there, right out of the gate, we're seeing that God is saying, I'm holy and I want you to know this. I want you to see this. I'm holy. Moses later would not be allowed to go to the promised land. Why? Because he struck the rock instead of, spoke, instead of speaking to the rock. And what did God say to him? You can't go. You will die here because you didn't regard me as holy. Because he, because he, he, he struck a rock, which God had already told him to do that. And the second time he said, I want you to speak to it. And he didn't do it. And he said, you didn't regard me as holy. And it just, if I can just take a just tangicize, I'm going to make up a word. If I can just go on a tangent for just a second. And this is where my mind goes. God strikes Uzzah for touching in an attempt to keep the Ark of the Covenant clean and pure and not be defiled. He strikes Uzzah, kills him right there. Ananias and Sapphira tell a lie, which you and I do all the time. And he strikes them. You know, uh, you have all these instances where God, Moses is not allowed. Moses wanders in the wilderness with God's chosen people for 40 years. And all he does wrong that's recorded is he didn't speak to the rock, but instead he struck the rock, which God had already instructed him to do. Sometimes we might be tempted to say the punishment doesn't quite fit the crime. But our minds should immediately go to the holiness of God and say, oh, how wrong I am. Keep in mind, when, when, when Isaiah saw the beatific vision, when Isaiah looked, and we see in Isaiah chapter 6 that whole beatific vision that is recorded for us, what happened as Isaiah interacted with the glory of the Lord, as he saw the glory of the Lord? His response is, I am undone, woe is me. Literally, it says he became unraveled. It broke him apart being at the presence of the holiness of God. And he says, I am a man of unclean lips and I live among a people of unclean lips. And then it says that a hot coal was taken from the fire to touch his lips. Why? To carterize the impurity. Because God is holy. Because God is holy. And so... If this shoe fits, how dare we ever question God's judgments when he is the Holy One of Israel? How dare we ever question why God would take Uzzah or Ananias and Sapphira or not let Moses go to the Promised Land or say the punishment doesn't quite fit the crime? How dare we ever, ever, ever even attempt to question God's ways when he is holy? So Moses is encountering this holiness. He's seeing this bush, and God speaks to him, and then I'll just paraphrase the exchange. God is telling Moses, "I want you to go to Pharaoh, and I want you to speak to Pharaoh. Ph- Ph- Moses, this man from Midian, this keeper of sheep for his father-in-law, who, who fled after he committed murder in Egypt, and he's there in hiding. And then God calls him out and says, I want you to go. You thought you were going to get away, but you've got to go back. You've got to stand before Pharaoh. Moses is scared to death. Makes excuses, right? I can't speak very clearly. Well, good. I got your brother Aaron. He'll go with you, and he'll speak on your behalf. But before all this happens, Moses finally says, or during all this, Moses finally says to him, okay, okay, so you're wanting me to do this. Who do I say sent me? Because Moses is a messenger. If you're sent as a messenger, you're representing someone who gave you the message. You're going to go and say, so-and-so said this. Austin was taunting me through text messages the other day, saying something about the homeowner's dog was sick all night because I fed the dog popcorn, which I did. I fed the dog popcorn, but I didn't overfeed the dog popcorn. So he texts me, and I don't know whether to believe him or not. I'm not saying your other elder's a liar. I'm just saying he might deceive in a trickery fashion. And so he said to me, I said, I said well, I just sent him a, a nice meme that said something like you sit on the throne of lies or something like that. And he said, don't shoot the messenger, man, <laughs> and, uh, because he's representing words of someone else. And Moses is saying, I've got to represent someone. I can't stand on my own accord. I can't say that I, I, I come on my own accord. <laughs> Let God's people go. And how does God respond? God doesn't say, tell him someone that's like a king tell him someone that's better than a Pharaoh. Tell him someone that's divine. He didn't even say that. God didn't even say, tell him someone that's majestic. God responds by saying, I am that I am. The same Hebrew phrasing that God uses of himself in Exodus 3 is taken and used by Jesus when he says, I am the living water. He's taking a designated title of Yahweh. He's saying I am. And this is this, this 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 is true for every I am statement. So he didn't just say it once. He says it seven times. And not just that, consider the fact that these I am statements, consider what they mean when we consider our natural position as it corresponds to who God is. Jesus said what? I am the bread of life. We saw this in John chapter 6. I am the bread of life. What do we know of ourselves? That apart from Christ, we are starved. Man does not live by bread alone, but from every word that comes from the mouth of God or everywhere that comes from the mouth of Christ if you're not in Christ you definitely don't have the bread of life that is sustaining you so you are dead spiritually you are malnourished spiritually so there's a contrast in every single statement or I am statement I am the light of the world the apostle Paul writes to the church in Ephesus and he doesn't just say you were in darkness which is language that we would be familiar with he says you were darkness You see, it's different that you were in darkness versus you were darkness. You were the epitome of evil. You were the epitome of being separate from God because you are broken and separated because of your sin. I am the door, he says. I am the door. We are all estranged. We are all outsiders when we're born out of christ we're outsiders he says i'm the resurrection and the life we were all dead ephesians makes that clear again you're dead in your trespasses and sins he says i'm the resurrection and the life and he says i'm the good shepherd we were all sheep without a shepherd all sheep without a shepherd Jesus even said this already in the book of John, and this is who we were outside of Christ. Do I believe that we were sheep from the beginning? Absolutely. I don't think we are goats and then turn into sheep. That's not what the scripture teaches. But there's an appointed time where those whom God has called, those sheep, they come into the fold. So I am the good shepherd. We were sheep without a shepherd, exposed, vulnerable, in danger. He says, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. Our way was lost, and our souls were lifted to what was false. We had no life and he says I'm the true vine we were cut off from the source of life because this is what a vine does a vine carries nutrients and Jesus says I'm the true vine he's the absolute and only source of our life and we were cut off from that vine but the Bible talks later that his branches were grafted in And we become a part because of Christ and his atoning sacrifice. So this is definitely a statement of divinity just in the first two words. Ego I me. I am. And he says, I am the way, or he says, I am the light, the light of the world. The Jews would have most likely been familiar with the Old Testament language regarding light and darkness. There's a lot of it, both in the Old Testament and in the New Testament. But listen to this. They would have been familiar most likely, especially these leaders With the words of David in Psalm 44, verse 3, when he says, For by their own sword they did not possess the land, and their own arm did not save them, but your right hand and your arm and the light of your presence, for you favored them, the light of your presence. The light of your presence. Ezekiel 43 says, And behold, the glory of God of Israel was coming from the way, the east, and his voice was like the sound of many waters, and the earth shone with his voice glory there's a light there's a radiance of God Moses understood this firsthand when he stood up and he asked to see the glory of God and God said you must hide behind this rock and I'm going to pass and you'll see the literally the translation says you'll see the hind quarters of God the backside of God and you will radiate the glory of God Habakkuk 3 4 is radiance his radiance is like the sunlight he has rays flashing from His hand, and there is the hiding of His power. God has not concealed the fact that He is light. He has, through the Spirit of God, poured it into the language of the Old Testament and to the New Testament so we might know that there is a very real light and there is a very real darkness. In the New Testament it says God is light, and there is no darkness in Him. Even from the very beginning, we have in Genesis, we have in the beginning what God created the heavens and the earth what do we know of the earth at the time it was formless and it was void and the spirit of God hovered over the waters of the deep and then God spoke the first time recorded that God spoke was what he said let there be light we can't ignore the obvious theme of light and darkness in the scriptures and here Jesus is claiming to be that light even if we miss it they didn't miss it I would say m- some may have missed it. But either way, they didn't buy it. They didn't believe it for those that were not in Christ at that point. Instead, they wanted to kill him because he's claiming to be God. So it's a statement of divinity. Without without question, it's a statement of divinity. But it's also a statement of singularity. And let me explain what I mean by that. He says, I am the light of the world. Jesus is the only hope to both saint and sinner. Now, when I say that, as a sinner, as a saint, we are still sinners. But I'm just saying those words as a differentiation between those who are lost and those who are saved. But he is the only hope to those things. We live in a world of heroes. We love our heroes. We love them. Scrolling over Facebook the other day, I can't, I think it was the, the Jaguars quarterback. Help me out, you, you sports guys or girls. Uh, uh, the, 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 I think the quarterback for the Jaguars who was basically speaking against the prosperity gospel. I watched it and thought it was absolutely fantastic. I'm like, he's my hero. You know, we have a, we're a culture of heroes. We love heroes. We love venerating people and heroes and veterans and all these great things. And these things are fine and these things are good. But let's just be very clear and keep the main thing. The main thing is that the scripture says that there's no other name given among men by which we may be saved. Not in heaven or earth or under the earth, but the name of Jesus. Jesus is the hero that's sent. Jesus is the centerpiece. He's the focal point of redemptive history. Not you, not me, Jesus. Jesus is the hero of the story. A lot of the contemporary Christian songs today, we cannot sing. Because it says, it's, 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 it's kind of narcissistic. It's saying, well, we're not going to credit you with all this great stuff we're not going to ascribe to you all these things we're just going to talk about ourselves and i didn't have this in my notes or i would give you some i would give you some examples but if you want some we can talk later it's a statement of singularity singularity there's no other name given among men by which we may be saved jesus is saying i am the only hope for mankind i'm exclusive you can only find hope in Christ. It's not just a statement of singularity. But listen, he gives us, the statement shows us the extent. It shows us the scope. He says he is the light of the what? Of the world. He's the light of the world. Now in the book of John, the world is used many, many times. I believe, if memory serves me right, it's 77 accounts where world, where cosmos is mentioned in the book of John, which is way more than any of the other gospels. And there is a direct link. There is a direct correlation. But understand that the world is used in many different ways. In 1 Corinthians, you have within a few chapters, you have a scripture talking about God redeeming the world to himself. And in that specific passage and context, he's speaking of people, those who are redeemable. Trees are not. don't need redemption. Trees haven't fallen, right? They didn't sin against God. The dirt didn't sin against God. Animals didn't sin against God. People sin against God. So in one passage of 1 Corinthians, when it speaks of the world, he's saying, I will redeem man, those who believe. There's a specificity in that context. But then you've got other contexts where he is including the entire world. All really does mean all in those passages. But here in the book of John, this is not a universalistic text. He is saying, I am the light of the world. I am the light of all mankind. Who will what? Believe. And that's supported in the, next, in the next phrase. So there's a statement of extent. Or there's the statement of, of scope. He's the, he's the only Savior for mankind, for all of mankind. Anyone who professes Christ, anyone who puts on the Lord Jesus Christ, anyone will be saved. For all who call on the name of the Lord will be saved. And Jesus says, I am the light of the world. And finally, it's a statement of revelation. Jesus is, as the Word of God, the revelation of God. In Christ we know God. Christ is the light that illuminates the mind of man towards God. That's made clear in Hebrews. That's made clear in John 1.1. In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God. How do we know God? Through Jesus and because of Jesus. He's the image of the invisible God. He even says to them already, if you don't know me, you don't know the Father. He says, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father because Jesus is the image of God and the way that we know and understand God. It's interesting how there is a universality when it comes to uh, uh, our relationship with light and darkness. You don't have to teach a kid to be afraid of the dark, do you? I mean, it's almost like innate or intrinsic to our nature is something happens at dark. Many, many times my kids have gone to bed brave as they can be, but when darkness falls... Can we sleep in your room, Mama Daddy? Well, they don't ask me. They ask Mama because she has a heart. Sometimes I say suffer alone. Is that bad? Is that bad of me? I borrowed it from a friend. Suffer alone. Daddy, I don't like it when you say suffer alone. Yes, so so, so you don't have to teach a kid to be afraid of, of, of darkness. You don't have to train a kid to respond with relief when the lights come on. I can remember many times when I've been out in the woods camping, sitting around the fire, maybe you're talking about stuff, maybe you're talking about scary stuff. I don't know why, but when I was younger especially, it always seemed in the darkness of backcountry camping with a fire and nothing else around you but bears and goblins and other kind of creepy things. Uh, The subject of demons would come up, and then it's like, I am not sleeping by myself in that hammock. I'm just not going to do it. Like, I'm so much safer because I'm going to be behind this thin fabric wall, you know, uh, bunking up with, with with another guy, like you know, we're gonna we're gonna muscle up and, and take out anything demonic that comes after us. And then you're like, man, I'm like, I mean, I was younger, man, thirty five or something, and I'm I'm in there, and I'm, like, you know, I'm a, I'm a little scared. Let's not talk about it anymore, you know. I just try to go to sleep saying Jesus, spelling Jesus, you know, I am a C, I C H R S T I N, whatever I can, to to just be bold, be brave. And then finally. The dawn comes, and I wake up, and I'm like, what was I scared of? What was I afraid of? That was silly, and that's how I feel. That's how I felt as a child. That's how I even feel today, because sometimes, sometimes when I'm at home by myself, I'm like, I'm a little nervous. Sarah's gone. She protects me. She's gone. All I have are me and my wiggly feet, and I get nervous, I like, wakes up in the morning, the sun's shining. I'm brave again. I could have handled anything. There's just a weird relationship that we have with light and with darkness. I was in the Ozark Mountains doing uh, doing some, uh, some well, I say we did we went spelunking one time. And that's all I'm doing, ever, ever. If you ever crawl in a hole that the only way out of it is to go in reverse, you shouldn't be there. You shouldn't be there. Bad idea. We were in those same mountains in the Ozark Mountains back when we lived in Mississippi. We drove o- over to Arkansas, and I was there with the youth group speaking for a camp one night and, or one 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 week or whatever. We go in there and they say, "All right, everybody, we're going to go. We go deep into this mountain. You know, it's like the Mines of Moria. We're just traveling. And if you don't know that, you know, look it up. So we're 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 going deeper and deeper and deeper, and it is just we're. It feels like miles into this into this cave. We got flashlights, so we're brave. We got light. We can control things. And then our guide says, "All right, I want everybody to cut your lights off." <laughs> no, I'm sorry. No, there are things here, demons. B- you know. B- boogers what I don't know Some bad things <laughs> she says cut the lights off and there is not a shred of light because we're so far in there that light can't get there you know I've, I've gone to the bathroom and I've, I've, I've gone to our bathroom where there's no windows and I've shut the door and I cut the lights off and immediately it's pitch black but it takes about five seconds my eyes start to adjust and then there's there's light and that's the same way pretty much anywhere in my whole house my whole house but in this cave it was not the case in the deep recesses of this cave, there was zero light. And then she says, okay. She, takes a, she cuts her light on and she takes this ball and she shines the light on this ball so it would glow in the dark. And then she's like, all right, let's, let's play a game of, of toss the ball. No one could catch the ball because it completely disrupts your depth perception when everything's pitch black and you've got this glowing orb flying at your face. You know? So we're getting hit. We can't catch it. We can't pick it up. We can't move. It was so disorienting. It was an awful, awful, awful experience, and that's how darkness is sometimes. There's dangers there in darkness. Your depth perception is off. You lose the ability of sight, so you don't know what dangers are working ahead of you. There have been places that I've camped that I had to hike at night, and I didn't even know how close I was to this edge that would have certainly meant my death if I would have fallen off. You know, I didn't even know the danger was there, but it was there. I had no concept of this. So darkness is a a very real issue, a very real thing that we interact with. And the imagery and the intentionality of the language is so strong and so prevalent that you'd have to be blind not to see the thread of light woven, or the the thread of light and darkness woven to the fabric of the scriptures. You have to just be ignoring everything. As I've said before, Genesis starts with darkness and then enters light with the first words of God that are recorded. John 1:5. the light shines in darkness and the darkness did not comprehend it just to show you more as far as the New Testament interaction with light and darkness acts 26 to open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness this is Luke's prayer this is a, a, a prayer to open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light and from the dominion of Satan and to God. Ephesians 5.8, you were formerly darkness. Colossians 1.13, he rescued us from where? The domain of darkness and brought us to the kingdom of his beloved son. John 3.19, this is the judgment that the light has come into the world and men love the darkness rather than light. And then finally, 1 Thessalonians 5.5, for you are all sons of light and sons of day. We are not of night nor of darkness. So we don't deny the theme. So when Jesus comes out to these people, again, taking ourselves to a first century context, and Jesus says, I am the light, I have to believe that it would have landed on them. That it wouldn't have been, oh, I've heard this a thousand times, I know that you're light, I know that you're good, I know that you're eternal, I know that you created all things. This is blowing their mind when he says this. With such attention given to light and darkness throughout the scriptures, the next phrase of Jesus should draw us in and should cause us to consider its implications. He says, I'm the light. Therefore, therefore, if anyone follows me, you will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. So there's your statement. And here's the promise. That if you follow Christ, you will not walk in darkness, but you will have the light of life. This text gets real specific real fast. Many would seek to make this text universal and say that Christ is a light to all men eventually. I've sat with Mormons who looked at me and said, well, eventually, eventually, because God is good. God is good. And they're trying to harmonize everything with the goodness of God. They're taking one attribute, one facet, and saying, everything must conform to that. Let's ignore justice. Let's ignore all these other things. Let's ignore wrath. Let's ignore holiness. Let's just stick with love. That's what we'd like to do. That's what we like to do. When Aaron and them posted one of their conversations with a lady when they were downtown Greenville witnessing, this lady kept saying, well, God is God, God is love, God is love, God is love. Right. And that's one dimension. That's one dimension. That's one attribute. And she wouldn't entertain the other attributes. She wouldn't entertain this multidimensional yet full and infinite God that is holy. So many would seek to make this text Universal. You know, see, it says right here that he's he's a light to to the world. But the text doesn't allow that because it says whoever, whoever follows him. Same is true with John 3.16. The only people that benefit from the gospel and its effective power are those who believe. Same thing. So the verse doesn't allow when it says whoever follows. This is a specificity that only allows for a certain group to enjoy the light of Christ Those who believe. Simple enough. This is what Jesus is saying. You can no longer be in darkness if you just follow me. The second part of this verse tells us what the light of Christ does. What purpose it serves. First of all, obviously, is salvation. This context is a context of salvation. He's saying you follow me, trust me, put on the Lord Jesus Christ, become a follower of Jesus is to become a christian as it would be called in the book of acts so the light also is a term for salvation we are brought out of darkness and into the light but it also applies to our sanctification that's why i say this is hope for both the sinner and the saint the sinner needs salvation the sinner needs to be rescued from that darkness and brought into the light they need to have the illumination of truth dropped onto them so that they can see and seek Jesus, because otherwise we do not, the Scripture says. And so once we're in Christ, it doesn't just stop there. He is the light of men. He is the light that guides the way, that is a pathway for us. So there's salvation, but there's also sanctification in this. Journeying through this life, the light is given as a means of direction or guidance to see what is right and to watch out for what is wrong. Sometimes when we go backpacking, we end up doing night hiking, just like I told you where we might be on an edge that is kind of precarious, and it's not usually the funnest thing. It's easy to trip. You could potentially lose the trail. Sometimes we hike really close to edges. But when the light comes, you can stay on track. You can avoid danger. So you're thankful for your headlamps. You're thankful for your flashlights. You're thankful for the dawn. You're thankful for the sunlight because you will most likely be safe when you can see when the light comes the same is true of humanity when we come into the light of Christ the light helps us stay on track the light helps us avoid danger he calls us to follow so this is a promise but in this promise it's accompanied by a call to action he says whoever follows me so don't just think of it in terms of belief As in, oh, I acknowledge that you're good. I acknowledge that you're true. I acknowledge these things. There's an expectation that God is making very clear in Christ here that we must follow him. When you read language like, whoever wants to be my disciple must what? First take up his cross deny himself and follow me. There's action that's required of us. Action that's more than just something that's in my mind, something that's mental. Just to me acknowledging, okay, Jesus, you died for sinners. Jesus, you, you, you know, if, you, if I call on you for salvation, you will save me. That's fine, that's well, that's good. But he doesn't stop there, right? There's a call to action. And here's another example of that. He says, whoever follows me will not walk in darkness. M- we must go where the light goes. We must go where the light already is and where the light is pointing us. And let me explain to you what's going on here because I think we can misunderstand it if we're not careful. Imagine giving a child a flashlight and dropping that child off in a forest that he's unfamiliar with or that she's unfamiliar with and saying, find your way. And they're just going in random directions. They have light so their way is illuminated. But they don't know where they're going. If you drop me off in a forest that I don't know or a forest that I do know for that matter, in the middle of the night with a flashlight, I will have a hard time finding my way. This is not the image that we should be having when we're thinking of Jesus as the light or when we're thinking of walking in the light and not walking in darkness. Here's the image you should have. One that is wrong is dropping somebody off in the woods, giving them a flashlight to hold that they can control, and they go wherever their little hearts desire. That's illuminated. They can see everything. That's not the image, so get that out of your brain. The image is this. You're put there. You are in darkness. All of a sudden, this giant spotlight is beaming the way. You can't control the spotlight. You can't tell it where to go because it's not you. It's Jesus, and that light is pointing the way, and the idea here is that you walk in the pathway that the light is projecting, and what happens with a light that is immovable? And you venture the opposite direction. You end up where? In darkness. In other words, Jesus is saying, I am the light of the world. I have provided the light. I have provided the pathway towards truth, towards righteousness. I have provided this way in sanctification. This is how you will do what is right, what is good, what is pure, what is true. I've provided this for you. The same language is true in the, in, the, in, in the Psalms where your word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. This light that is the word of God is fixed. It's not open for debate. It's not open for discussion in that sense or negotiation. It's given us truth. We abide by it. We pursue it. And if we go the other way, we're out of step. It's not that difficult. And the same is true with Jesus as the light. Though you may wonder, the light doesn't move. It always illuminates the way in which God would have us go. Be careful that you aren't mistaking the light of Christ for what really is your own light in which you're lighting your own way. When Christ says that we will not walk in darkness, it doesn't mean that he will prevent us from making mistakes or from wandering. It means there will always be a path to follow. It means that the path will be there And it will be a reminder and it will show us when we're not in step. Because the moment we walk out of the path that the light is projecting, we walk into darkness. But then there's something interesting. If you're thinking at all, well not thinking at all, if 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 you've thought on this, maybe this thought has come into your mind. Jesus says, I am the light of the world. But in Matthew chapter 5, he says something pretty significant. He says, you are the light of the world. So how in the world do I reconcile Jesus is the light of the world with I am the light of the world? How do we reconcile that? And I have thanks to give to my wife for helping me see this because I came in and I'm giddy as a schoolgirl and I'm saying, I've got this great illustration. I'm going to talk about projecting light. I'm going to talk about a kid wandering around. You know, and she's like, well, but we're the light. I'm like, you're messing it up, Sarah. So she helps me to see this so I have to go back and start thinking, okay, what's the, what's the connection and this is what I would offer you. So there's two different things here. We are the light of the world and Jesus is the light of the world. And here's the mechanics of that. We are the light of the world. We shine so that our good works might be seen and that they might glorify God. The time that we shine for the glory of God is when we are walking in the light. And what happens when light hits a surface, like the moon, it reflects it. That's how you and I are the light. If we are in the light, that light reflects off of us. And that's what the world sees. They don't see Jake as good. They don't see Wesley as good. They see Jesus as good. Because we are in his image. We're showing the world a portrait of Christ In the works that we produce according to Matthew chapter 5. That's how you reconcile Jesus is the light. And yet we are the light of the world. My final application. If God the Father has given us the light of Christ. And that light is provided so that we might stay on track. Here's some thoughts. Darkness is a place reserved for shame and contempt. Darkness is never good. Non-Christian it's bad. It's who you are. It's the sum total of your existence opposed to God. But for the Christian, it's never good. Darkness is always bad. That's 100% consistent in the scriptures. Darkness is bad. And the scriptures say, take no part in the unfruitful work of darkness, but instead expose them, for it is shameful even to speak of the things that they do in secret. The pathway of light may lead you through tumultuous seasons. So though you are trekking with the light in the direction that the light is showing you, I want to be very clear about this, and this is something you know, but let me just remind you. Being in the light is not this magical happy place where nothing bad happens to you. It's not this place where you're cancer free forever. It's not this place where you don't have marital issues. That's wrong. As a matter of fact, the best place for you to be is quite possibly and quite often the hardest place you'll ever be. Because sometimes in the will of God, we are stripped of things. We are stripped of idols and those things are painful. Sometimes in the will of God, God tests us and he takes us through this crucible and he refines us with fire so that we come out on the other side for his glory being a better representation of him. So make no mistake about it, though you might be walking in the trajectory and the projection of the light and it's the best place you'll ever be, it can be the hardest place you've ever been. It can be the most difficult experience of your life. But we count the cost because it's such a small price to pay even our life if at the end of the day we've magnified God the Father. So the pathway of light may lead you through tumultuous seasons As we follow the light, we reflect the light of Christ. And sometimes when we reflect that light, as Austin helped me to see the other night, last night, when we reflect light, we shine, and that makes us a target. That makes us noticeable. It's hard to slip under the radar when you're shining for Christ. And that's why sometimes those seasons of being in the light are tumultuous and difficult and even dangerous. But let me just remind you, there is no greater danger than falling into the hands of the living God. There's no greater danger than acting, acting contrary-wise to what God has commanded of us. The light of Christ that shines the way to keep us on track is pointing to the revealed will of God. You say, well, how do I know what that light is? Know your word. Know the Bible. Know God's word. And follow that as God has revealed His will Walking in the light is walking in such a way that you stay in step with what is good and what is right and what is true. And that is straight from the letter of Paul to the church in Ephesus. And I want to end by reading these 10 verses that Paul writes regarding light, regarding uh, darkness, and regarding our conduct as those who represent Jesus. He says, therefore, imitators of God as beloved children. He said, walk in love. As Christ loved us and gave himself for us, a fragrant offering and a sacrifice to God. But sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you as it is proper among saints. He says, let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking, which are out of place, but instead let there be thanksgiving. So what he's just listed, by the way, is what happens when Christians are walking in darkness. Walking in the light looks like edification of the saints, speaking encouraging words to one another. Looks like holding one another accountable, challenge one another, all these great things. But when we fall into these things, the scripture says we're not walking in light, but we're walking in darkness. Verse 5, Paul says, For, may, for you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or who is covetous that is, an idolater has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Let no one deceive you with empty words for because of these things the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. And he says, therefore, do not become partakers with them for at the one time you were darkness. Again, for at that one time you were darkness but now you are light in the world. Walk as children of the light for the fruit of light is found in all that is good and right and true and try to discern what is pleasing for the Lord. And that's my prayer and my challenge as we close out, that we may strive for what is good, what is right, and what is true. And if we're doing that, you can guarantee that you're walking in the light, as a child of the light, and that God is glorified. And that's what we want. So we'll pray. We'll give some instructions, and then we'll move forward. Father, I pray that you would protect us from lifting our souls to things that are false. Father, I pray that in our great weakness that you would time and time again show us that you're strong. Lord, that you would remind us of the hope that we have in you when we are tempted to despair. Lord, keep us in the light. Lord, it's easy when we walk in darkness to become spiritually disoriented and sometimes when that happens, Lord, we don't know what's right. Maybe we don't know what's wrong. Maybe we get confused. Lord, we just... Act foolishly. Lord, I pray that you would redirect our steps so that we might find the pathway of light. Lord, for the ultimate purpose that we might reflect that light as children of the light so that they may see our good works. And Lord, that you might be glorified. Lord, give us an appetite for your glory. Give us a burning to make much of you. Lord, an appetite and a burning that is so strong that even when we're tempted by sin, tempted by our flesh, Lord, that we would see greater things in your glory than we would in our own. And I pray that you would be glorified in us as we leave this place, Lord. So many of us have different needs and hurts and fears and anxieties. Lord, every one of us do. And Lord, as as, as, as one of the, the elders here, Lord, we we know more than many, what everyone is going through. Lord, and it's a tremendous weight that we carry. Lord, I lift all of them up to you and I ask that you would minister to their needs. I ask that you would give us all patience with one another, that we would be consistent and affirming. Lord, that we would exercise proper one anothering and that we would look after each other's interests. And Father, I pray that you would continue in keeping us as we get ready to leave this place and help us to be beacons of light in the darkness. In Jesus' name, amen.